brought a Bible with you tonight, you might turn with me to Isaiah 53. If you have uh, an app, you can use that. I'd like to take just a few minutes and try to uh, explain some of what you've just heard. Pam read from Isaiah 53, and Jeremy read from John. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you know that we've been walking through uh, a series of scriptures known as uh, the Servant Songs. These were psalms. These were songs written uh, long before Jesus came to earth, around 700 years before Jesus came. And they're prophetic texts that are designed to tell us exactly what Jesus came to do. And so tonight, we'll do what we normally do on Good Friday, and that is consider in depth the death of Christ. But we want to do more than that tonight as well. We also want to consider what is it that Jesus' death calls us to? Is there a pattern there in some way that we are to emulate? As we look at these verses tonight, just for a few minutes, and we consider the suffering servant Jesus, let's do remember his death. Ultimately, because every sin ever committed must meet the justice of God. Every sin ever committed must meet the justice of God. There's nothing evil that you have ever done or that has been done to you that won't meet God. Nothing. Either you can stand before the maker of heaven and earth and deal with the consequences of sin alone... Or you can stand before him knowing Jesus already took the consequences for you. Those are the only two options. That's how the future will play itself out. For that reason, the death of Jesus is the most important death that's ever occurred. It's the only death that was sufficient to be in our place. Are you thankful for that tonight? But let's do more than just remember. Let's also consider how Jesus' death calls us to emulate Him. Not, of course, in the suffering for the sins of others, not in the substituting of ourselves for sin, but in the humble servanthood that Jesus shows, in the model of living a kingdom kind of life. I've uh, struggled greatly trying to prepare these messages for tonight and for Sunday because Isaiah 52, 53, 54 is the, the crux of what all of Scripture is about. Normally I spend about a day on a message and I'm up in the six, seven, eight days uh, on this because I've struggled greatly to find the words to try and communicate just how important this is. So my hope tonight is that as we we look at it, that you'll hear the words of the the Lord and that that'll stick with you. But one idea I came across was to just take a theme from each stanza of this song and and sort of drive it down into our hearts for a moment and then move on to the next. And I really don't know what else to do because there's so much here and you didn't come planning to spend the night. So... Let's look starting in Isaiah 52, and we're going to see four things. We're going to contemplate the strange mixture that's present in Jesus. And then we'll 
try to see how we're told to accept the utter ordinariness of Jesus. Third, we'll look at the magnitude of His love and rejoice in it. And finally, just real briefly, we'll consider how to live for an upside-down kingdom. So first, contemplate this strange mixture that's present in Christ. Verse 13 of chapter 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he'll sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. There is in Jesus the strangest of all mixtures. It's a perfect combination of incredible triumph on the one hand and shocking defeat on the other. Amazing honor and horrific suffering. Supernatural strength and the very end of human life. Jesus is the only one who could come and conquer sin, death, and the devil. But his triumph came not through military might and not through sheer power. It came instead through the humble giving up of life. That's the mixture. Victory and defeat in the same act, in the same person. To look at him in that state would make most of us vomit. He was disfigured beyond human likeness, the text tells us. And yet he would willingly face death and in that death gain victory. Just imagine that you've never heard that before. Doesn't it seem odd? Isn't it strange that in the same act there could be both defeat and victory? It turns out that the slaughtered Lamb of God is also the resurrected Lord of all. And this shocking mixture of strength and weakness is exactly what Jesus calls us to. Just as with Jesus, the kingdom of God is not extended through military might or amassing great wealth or comfortable, easy, trouble-free lives. No, the way up is always the way down. Jesus said if we want to find our lives, we must lose them. If we want to find joy, we must give up control. That the greatest will be the servant. Friend, the gospel does not promise you a life free of suffering. In fact, it promises you a life of suffering. But that's the way of the master. So when we look at Jesus at the very centerpiece of his life, in the very heart of Scripture, why would we, as the people that bear his name, expect anything different? The way up is the way down. Therein lies the will of God for your daily life. The second stanza tells us to accept the the utter ordinariness of Jesus' life. Chapter 53, verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a tender root, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance 
that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Humanly speaking, Jesus was no big deal. He was born to an unwed teenage mom in a nothing town with a bunch of animals. He grew up, except for a few moments, virtually unnoticed. His dad was a blue-collar worker, and they lived on the wrong side of the tracks. He didn't have a great name, no royal heritage that anyone of the day would know of, no money. The king of the universe allowed himself to become nothing. Freely just gave up all of his rights. He exercised no special privileges and faced all the normal stuff of everyday life. When it was time for his public ministry to begin, his family thought he was nuts and his home church tried to kill him. On top of all of this, his message, the message of the gospel, the greatest message there's ever been, largely fell on deaf ears. He stood before his own capital city and wept as he realized they had rejected him. He came not with a message to kill the Romans and assume the glory of Israel, but an invitation to come and die. Therefore, they hid their faces from him. In a sense, this utter ordinariness of Jesus is the beautiful call of the Christian life. It is the message that we're ushered into as believers. How many times on the news this week have you seen Christians engaging in fights because they're losing power in society? How many believers made arrogant fools of themselves this week because they claimed the secular society owed them something? That's the exact opposite of what Jesus did. Christians were on the very margins of society. And it's always been that way. Jesus was despised. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He was treated as an insane lunatic. And if we live the way of Jesus, the same thing will happen to us. It won't be normal, it won't be popular. It's not a way to win friends and influence people. If the consuming passion that drove Jesus' life drove our lives, our path would look much more like His. Do you ever get turned off by the ordinariness of your church? By the ordinariness of the people you're around? By the oddness of other Christians? Quit elbowing the person next to you. Daily life as a Christian can be more like the pain of the marathon than the joy of crossing the finish line. It's just not always easy. But again, we bear the name Christians. So why would we expect anything different? It was that way for Jesus, it will be that way for us too. The sooner we accept the ordinariness of Christ, the sooner we'll begin to find immense joy in just that, in the stuff of everyday life. 
In stanza three, we're shown that we can rejoice in the magnitude of love. This is the real heart of the passage. Surely He took up our pain. Surely He bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was not the member of the Trinity who drew the short straw. It's not as though somewhere in eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit were hanging out and Jesus drew the fewest number of jacks or lost the final game of tag. Instead, He was the one who voluntarily said, I'll go. I'll go. I'll give up the glory of heaven and of intimate union with the Father and the Spirit. I'll become human. I'll live like they do. And then I'll face what only I can possibly face, and that is the wrath of God. Jesus was was active. He willingly came. He joyfully came. He voluntarily bore the damnation for our most heinous sins. He became a curse for us. Look at verse 4. He says He took up. It's not merely that Jesus received our sin. He actively chose to take them up. There's nothing inside of us that inside of Jesus that deserved what he got. For all eternity, he'd been in joyful, perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. Utter harmony. And he willingly yielded that for you. Nothing inside Jesus deserved it. But one thing demanded it. Love. The magnitude of that love can't be overstated. One theologian put it like this. God's grace is infinitely costly and melts your heart when you realize God was so holy He couldn't shrug evil off. But He was so loving He couldn't just punish us for it. So instead He took the punishment for us. That's love unlike any other love you will ever experience. And brothers and sisters, the love Jesus has for us beckons us to display that same love for one another. That's not a leap a preacher makes. It's what the Scriptures tell us. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. So the measure for how we treat each other is the measure of how God treats us. Now, the only way that's not crushing is if you consider that Jesus was crushed for you. And therefore, He gives you that love in order that we could give it to one another. Now, if if that's the model, then no sacrifice is too great. No amount of money to give to somebody in need is too much. No amount of time spent serving is too great. No pleading with a sinner to repent is too urgent. No discipling of a new believer is futile. No 
brokenheartedness over a brother or sister who stumbled into sin is too great. No care extended in grace is above and beyond. We love because He first loved us. What would it be like if we actually treated each other that way? There would be no room here. Finally, the last stanza we'll look at tells us to live for an upside-down kingdom. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He didn't open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away, yet who of His generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people, he was punished. The fourth stanza of this song brings us to an apt conclusion. The the kingdom of God, this churchy phrase we use, which simply means the rule, the reign, the presence, the power of God. It's where God is, things look like God would have them to look. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on the earth is an upside-down kingdom. It won't look like anything we would expect it to look like. It'll be utterly different. Because on the one hand, the most unjust event in history is the death of Jesus. Because the only person who never sinned was punished for the sins of all. But on the other hand... God's brilliant plan for Jesus to die for us is the very same event that ushers in the greatest act of justice ever. Here's what I mean. Christian, God no longer counts your sins against you. Not for a single moment. Not anything in your past. Not anything from today. Not anything for the rest of your life. God has no tally on you. It has been wiped clean. And so, Jesus' death, in a sense, was unjust because He didn't deserve it. And yet it's the most just thing possible Because He bore your sin and my sin. So the most just thing that God could possibly do was pour out all of His wrath on His own Son. So God no longer doesn't have a list of things that He's holding up, storing up wrath to pour out on you. You have more than a clean slate You have the positive righteousness of Christ. You see, you're not just treated like Adam was treated before he fell. You're treated like Christ is treated. You're treated like a son, like a daughter. Adopted, welcomed, embraced into the family of God. And so it would be unjust for God to ever have any wrath for you because he gave it all to the son 
If that doesn't make your heart leap, there's something wrong. That's the way the kingdom of God works. The very things that appear the most unjust and awful turn out to be the very things that God rejoices in and extend his kingdom. I want to challenge you and encourage you to live in the upside down kingdom. Do the unexpected things for the glory of God because that's what Christ did. Let's pray. Father, what a woefully inadequate attempt this was to explain just in a cursory way this incredible passage. So I pray what you would do now is that your spirit, who is alive and active and powerful and well and present, would take these truths and would pierce our hearts with them. And that your scriptures that are living and active would divide us to the very depths of who we are. And that whether for the very first time we come to understand the gospel or whether it's been happening in our lives over and over and over and over and over, I pray that we would see your sufficiency in the death of Christ and the glory of the life that we're given in you. And that we would see that joy and worship find their true end in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.